0: Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 72 of Inside Quizzing.
1: A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible.
0: And in this episode 72, uh, Scott and I will be continuing our progress through our self, a critical self-examination of quizzing, uh, talking about the worst quizzing practices, things that we do in quizzing, predominantly CMA quizzing, but things that we do in quizzing that we generally take some level of umbrage about, and <clears throat> we will uh, we will dis- uh, discuss each item and provide an umbrage scale between one and 10 and so forth. But before we do, we want to address a couple of listener questions. And these come from Danae, uh, who's a quizzer in CBQ, Canadian Bible quizzing from Ontario. And it's really awesome that we've got folks from outside of CMA who are listening to the podcast. So I'll just kind of read each of these questions and we'll just kind of discuss them and kind of see where these go. The first question is as follows. Why are people not quizzing not allowed to be closer to the quiz masters than the officials? Let's say like forward of the officials table. For example, what if you have a tiny room? I had a really small room at a tournament this past year, and this rule was forced to be broken in order for teams to uh, teams currently quizzing to have a coach and sub. So, Scott, what are your thoughts about this one?
1: I don't know of any rule mandating where anyone really should sit. There's n- there's not even anything talked about um, where quizzers should sit in proximity to the quiz master or anything of that nature. So I'm, I'm interested in rules that other districts might have. Now, that said, obviously, you wouldn't want the audience ever sitting um, somewhere that br- – breaks line of sight between the quiz master and any of the 12 quizzers. Um, But oftentimes, facilities that we have the privilege of using might just have small rooms, and it means that audiences are crammed in there. And between coaches and subs and parents and interested audience members, we want everyone to be able to watch a quiz. So sometimes it might be a little bit less than optimal. I know that we've had a few meets within PNW at very small churches, and um, people are just kind of packed into the room like sardines, and no one really, no one really minds or complains because they know that um, it's great to have a facility to quiz in. We do have to make sure to open doors and stuff, otherwise it gets really hot um, in there, so opening doors in between quizzes. But I would say as a quiz master, there are things I don't like. I don't like anybody sitting directly behind me or especially over a shoulder. Um, and it's not because I think that someone will cheat. I just think the competition is better when no coach or team member, um, can see my computer screen at all. So often whenever I show up at a quiz meet and I head to my quiz room, I, I might move chairs so that they are not directly behind me, but I sure don't mind if people are kind of in my periphery, far like outside me like kind of if if you extended the officials table um, For a long way and people just kind of lined up down there. I think that that's totally fine So I think you just kind of have to roll with whatever makes sense and the quiz master really gets to dictate whatever they want to have happen
0: Yeah, so I mean certainly there isn't as far as I know there isn't any rule or policy around this certainly in PNW uh, there isn't a policy but when I first read this question, my my initial thought was, oh, well, yeah, there's a policy, like there's a rule or something, because I vaguely remember this being a thing, but like it was years and years and years ago. So this might have been like, you know, 1995, 96, 97, somewhere in that sort of era. And it might have been in CMA, in PNW, but it may have actually been in World. And maybe I'm just remembering a rule from, you know, night, late 1990s world quizzing rulebook or something. And I'm just conflating it in my head, but I'm, I'm, I vaguely remember there being some kind of rule of like a quizzer, or actually quizzers coaches, basically anybody who's not actively quizzing in that moment cannot be seated forward of the quiz masters table. But I mean, certainly that doesn't exist. Um, and of course, you know, certainly we would, we would put this under, you know, the quiz master can set up the, his or her room however, you know, he or she would like to do that. Um, but Scott, how would you feel? Let's say you were in a room that, you know, was a little on the smaller side, maybe not super crammed, but a little on the smaller, smaller side. And somebody actually sat in front of your table, not like, like literally like right in front of it, but let's say, off to the side, but forward to the quizzers from where you were, say like sitting on the floor or something like that. Um, maybe a couple of feet forward of where say your laptop was.
1: Um, I wouldn't have a large problem with it, but I generally like to be able to see people as best as I can. Um, I guess the vast majority of people are behind me, which I would have to turn around to see. But again, going back to the fairness and cheating sides of things, it is not that I expect anyone to cheat, but I think everyone enjoys and trusts the competition more if the quiz master is able to see everyone. And I can like, make sure that no team member is making any sort of gesture or anything towards a quizzer. Um, so I would probably request that no one sits in front of the table, but, um, it is not uncommon to have quizzers sitting on the floor, but, um, right in front of the first row of the audience, which would still kind of be behind the quiz master.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I generally feel the same way. I think I would be m- more inclined to be okay with it, especially if the room is pretty tightly packed. Um, but I'm, I'm very much like you. I don't want somebody like directly behind me, especially if they're, you know, very, very tightly, uh, packed behind me. So even in small rooms, I will actually remove a couple of chairs from say directly behind the quiz master and I'll actually move them to the sides in front of the front row. Um, because even though those chairs might be slightly forward of my position, uh, I, I generally think that's, that's just better, um, than, than otherwise. But yeah, I mean, going back to the core quizzer question, um, It'll be interesting to see if like, you know, if, if there's a rule in Canadian uh, Bible quizzing, uh, either Ontario or anywhere else in Canada, I, I don't recall there being one in PNW. Maybe I'm thinking of world, but if any if any listeners out there recall if there was or even still to this day is rules uh, governing this sort of thing, I'd be very curious to uh, hear from you. Well, so the next question is a little bit longer, <clears throat> and so I'll read this one, and then Scott just kind of jump in here with your, uh, your thoughts on this. Um, this is what uh, the listener wrote to us. This is more of a question from an outside of CMA point of view, but are you allowed stacking teams, and what are your opinions on this? We are, quote, highly discouraged, unquote, from stacking teams. There's a preseason email that goes out, and there, uh, this was in the email. Yet there was a group that completely stacked. Uh, One of these teams was first uh, to second every meet and was uh, completely made up of non-rookies. And one of the other teams was at rock bottom every meet with mostly rookies. It annoys me a lot because my group uh, coaches purposefully uh, did not stack our, our teams. We were mostly in the middle of the scoreboard, except for my brother's team, where there was a rookie who ended up beating non-rookies to jumps and getting uh, quizzed out uh, almost every quiz. Uh, but the other team uh, that has done this... Uh, uh, every year I've quizzed and I wanted to get your opinions on stacking teams. I think my umbrage at the fact that this isn't a rule is probably about 7.5 to 8 as it really frustrates me. So, uh, Scott, I know we've talked about uh, team stacking, you know, probably a good year and a half ago or something like that, but what uh, kind of recount your thoughts on team stacking. Certainly there isn't a rule in CMA against uh, stacking and there isn't a rule in P&W against stacking, but what are your
1: general thoughts on it? So I think one of the biggest struggles in quizzing from kind of a coach and quizzer and team standpoint is that team interests and individual interests kind of fight against each other. And what I mean is the stronger a team that you have, the harder it will be for the individuals on that team to score well individually. And I would I would imagine that most districts are similar to PNW in that there are quizzes that count both for team purposes to try to win a meet or place for the year, um, but also those same quizzes count for individual averages that might count for meet placement or Great West, Winter Nationals, International's qualification. And so because you have these two interests that really work against each other, um, it's up to the coach to the coach and the leader of the church program to figure out what are their goals, and um, what things are most important to them when they're constructing teams. Um, And this this can be, I mean, there can be a, a large number of things that are important that those program leaders and coaches are trying to optimize and prioritize as they talk to their quizzers, right? Like maybe you have a couple seniors that really want to win the district as a team and you want to put them together and they're going to be very strong. Maybe you've got... A bunch of quizzers that you all want to be coach, um, not coach captains by themselves. Um, maybe you know, and, and you could probably think of a lot of other possible goals and priorities that people might have. So that's the first thing: is that team interests and individual interests are kind of at odds with each other. So then I think it's up to the leaders of each district to put in place a competitive structure that rewards the things that they want to reward. Um, I I'm pretty against rules like any sort of rule against stacking because it's really hard to define and enforce and it just kind of looks bad the way that you have to phrase it um because you know what if you know, let's say it's you can't put your best two quizzers from your church together. Well, what if your church only has enough for one team? What if those who those best two quizzers are change over the course of the year? There's there's just a lot of complications. So within PNW, we we almost embrace the fact that team interests and individual interests are at odds with each other. To um, I we don't really embrace it actually. It just kind of naturally cuts down on stacking because. Churches do want their best quizzers to have the best opportunity to qualify for Great West internationals, and so they will um, not stack to the extreme that they could. They often like to um, construct teams strong enough to get into the finals bracket because uh, we weight the brackets a little bit differently. Um, but I think that rules against stacking are going to be largely problematic. But I think what this question is is really getting at is... Um, it's kind of talked about as a guideline in their district, but then not everyone follows it. And that really sucks because it's kind of like this is this is a negative term, but like a cartel, right? You kind of all agree to do one thing. But then if one person does something else, they undermine that whole cartel. And um then you get none then only that team gets the benefits, and no one else does. And that's kind of what's happening here is most people, Uh, Maybe even all of them follow this no stacking kind of guideline that the district has, um, but then one team doesn't and then they dominate everyone. And so to me, I would definitely not be mad at that team or that church or that coach or anything. To me, that's a district problem. Either you want to change your incentive structure or you want to um, be the sort of district or district coordinator that if it is important to you that teams don't stack, you have those conversations with each church leader to ensure that they don't. However, you need to make that happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and I tend to agree. I mean, I think there is some advantages to stacking versus not toward the mission of quizzing. And that's really where, where I draw Everything back to, or I'd I'd pull everything back to. The goal is to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses. So in certain contexts, in certain districts, in certain churches, stacking makes a lot of sense to be able to get the most number of quizzers to memorize the most. In other cases, it's actually counter to the mission, right? And so, you know, my opinion on should you allow stacking or not in a broad sense, is sort of like, well, it depends. Which, which uh, would allowing or disallowing uh, increase or decrease the effectiveness of, of reaching mission, right? Getting the most number of quizzers to memorize the most number of verses, and then kind of from there you figure out how to how to how to make it work within a particular district uh, or within a particular program or church environment or whatever it happens to be. But I I totally agree. The idea that if you have a policy. That only, that everybody's following except for, say, one church, then that can be seriously problematic, uh, for the rest of the district. And I think can be counter to the mission. So in a sense, I am against the idea of having a no stacking policy that is not enforced, uh, universally, not because I have any particular opinion about stacking versus not in and of itself, but rather the demo, I, I am against the demotion, demotivational impact that uh, only a single team stacking and everyone else not would
1: result in. Yeah. And I think another principle that I really think is important is that I want all of the best quizzers to be tested against all of the other best quizzers. And whatever makes that happen, I'm in favor of. So I really like having either divisions or tiers or brackets within your district and then encouraging churches to make really strong teams or the strongest that they can. And then what happens is you concentrate the best quizzers um, on the best teams and they end up in the same bracket and have to make their way against each other. And then whatever the next tier of quizzers are, they only, and I don't mean that derogatorily, but they only have to make their way against quizzers who are similar to them and so on and so forth. And to me, that is, would be the most encouraging to every single level of quizzer rather than a top quizzer who happens to not get put on a stacked team and so is in a lower division or bracket or something and can just kind of run roughshod through it. Um, that's not a very motivating thing to anyone, including the top quizzer.
0: Right, indeed. It's very similar to, you know, in any sort of sport. uh, And of course, Bible quizzing is a sport. But in any other sort of sport, you would have different, say, leagues or different levels. And somebody who is an Olympic track and field uh, star is not going to be competing in the JV uh, league at a junior high school, right? There's there's a there's a a separation there. And the separation is useful, uh, for, th- uh, mostly for the people who are in JV, right? The idea of, of the separation between JV and varsity is not to elevate varsity, but to actually provide, Uh, motivation to the folks who are in junior varsity, so they can have a place where they can feel competitive, where they are competitive, not just feel competitive, where they can have a positive experience and by that be motivated to try even harder and Progress from JV into Varsity uh, and then beyond, right? Um, if you if you say, well, we're going to smush JV and Varsity together and force a scrambling of of teams, you tend to essentially demotivate. I think the upper
1: levels of quizzing. I would agree with that as well.
0: All right. Well, let's move on to our continuation of the worst quizzing practices. So again. Uh, this is going to smart a little bit uh, because we are going to be self-critical in, in our examination of quizzing practices. Uh, some of these things, uh, either myself or Scott may have actually been uh, not victim, uh, perpetrators, like uh, Scott or I may have been perpetrators of some of these uh, things that we're going to mention. Uh, so we are not holding back uh, the slings and arrows of our umbrage taking uh, in any respect. And of course, we're only doing this because we only criticize that, which we love and we love quizzing. And we hopefully through this process of taking some umbrage we will be providing some dialogue to help uh, improve quizzing. So as usual, we're going to talk about the idea, we'll discuss it a little bit, and then we will scale it uh, somewhere between one and ten, one where, you know, not very much umbrage at all, a uh, tiny bit of umbrage and ten, we're basically apoplectic in our umbrage taking. All right, so with that, we've kind of divided these up into sort of segments, and the first thing we're going to talk about, or first group of umbrages we're going to talk about uh, regards quiz masters. So in uh, talking about quiz masters, one of the things quiz masters routinely do, and they should, is, uh, conduct a series of practice questions prior to most quizzes, certainly the first quiz or two of a meet or a day at a particular meet and so forth. But there are times when this becomes a problem. So there are some quiz masters who will often Add far too many practice questions, so a quiz will begin is is, is is let's say scheduled to start at say uh ten o'clock. It turns out that it's ten fifteen, and the rooms are you know scheduled cyclically so if your room is or if a quiz master's room is behind, it causes all the other rooms to fall behind as well uh generally speaking. So, you know, you're 15 minutes late, the quiz master then says, okay, we're going to do a couple of practice questions. And it turns into like six or seven or eight uh, practiced questions that pulls the room even further behind the alternate or, or not alternate. Another problem with practice questions is that the questions themselves are just silly. They don't actually help the quizzers uh, figure out the pacing of the quiz master and be able to kind of hone in the speed, uh, of the quiz master. It's sort of like we're forgetting the point of, of practice questions. Practice questions are not there to break the ice or, you know, get the quizzers to just kind of be like, yay, we're just having fun and wasting time and, you know, that kind of thing. The, the point of practice questions is to provide the quizzers the opportunity to dial in a quiz master's pacing their their cadence, their style, how they recite things and so forth. so another one uh, that we should add to this list in terms of practice questions are quizmasters who treat their practice questions very differently in terms of pacing than regular questions where they will blitz through the practice question or they'll be fairly flippant about the ideas or the the like how are we how are we jumping on these things how are we answering these things and then they will suddenly shift between practice question mode and actual official question mode, and the quizzers now have to like redial in everything on question number one,
1: um, that's not really a good situation. So, Scott, what are your thoughts on this one? I think very similarly, but as you were talking, I was trying to think of other um, potential uses of practice questions. And I do think some, some amount of the use of them is to keep the room light because it can be, quizzers can get very nervous as a quiz is about to start. So I think it is useful to keep tensions low or anxieties low. Um, but to me, that's a much smaller part of the use of practice questions. The Much larger use is to get the quizzers acquainted with the quiz master's timing because we are not assuming that every quiz master will have the exact same pacing and timing and style of reading a question. And I don't think that they should have the exact same. And so those practice questions are crucial for a quizzer to figure out the timing. And so at the district level, I will often have the quizzers jump on a word where I'm getting them in tune with looking for a certain mouth shape. But I'm also taking care to read the question as I would read a normal question, especially the question number one is a practice question, question number one, question. And, like, just make sure that that pacing is completely identical to how I'm going to read a question in a quiz and the one time that I quiz mastered at internationals I made sure to read either a reference question or a quote question just the re- reference part of it um, as a practice question so that the quizzers had a sense for the timing at which I read references which are very important at internationals and I just don't like some quiz masters will ask three or four quest practice questions when they're behind time. And then even the ones that they do ask, they will be trivia questions that begin with like, what is the name of, or in what year did. And as a quizzer, then your focus automatically shifts to, well, if I jump at three syllables or try to like focus on the timing, then I'm not kind of useful to the rest of the room in getting this trivia question correct, that we kind of know, will need nine or 10 syllables on. And to me, it just it like shifts everyone's focus to getting the trivia correct and not locking in the quiz master's timing.
0: Right. Indeed. And the trivia can be fun. I mean, you know, we've done princess bride trivia in the past. We've done, uh, Jeremy likes to do uh, theological uh, uh, trivia or, or church history trivia. And, and that's, you know, very, fun and interesting and i don't know i'm i'm kind of a church history and theolo- theology nerd so i find that stuff very fascinating uh, and very interesting but if that is taken beyond some sort of subjective barrier it it stops becoming useful right um it might be if you've got a little extra time sure have a fun uh jump that's just for, for just for kicks or whatever uh but definitely if you're going to spend the time going through a practice jump have it be something where the quizzers can actually use it to dial in and prepare for the actual quiz itself. The other thing that's kind of interesting, I've noticed, I was just thinking about this. Quizmasters will, if they're waiting for, say, a third team, they'll actually go through a couple of practice jumps prior to the third team arriving. And now it's one thing to say, okay, we're waiting for a third team, so let's jump on movie trivia or something like that just to pass the time. And, and, and that's, that's totally fine, right? It's really more the idea of let's actually have dial in uh, speed-based uh, practice questions prior to the third team showing up, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no in particular harm in doing that. But the thing is, it, you, you then sort of get the quizzers dialed in, and then there's this long break bef- be- before you actually start quizzing. And it's almost like you have to sort of redo those practice questions, or at least one, to
1: kind of set the tone for the room before you begin. That is very true. All right. Well, what what do you got next? Oh, actually, I didn't go over my umbrage level. I don't recall. Oh, if yeah, you did. good.
0: Yeah, I didn't either. So, what's your umbrage level on practice questions in general? Let's say.
1: I think my umbrage level just from either of these annoying practices happening would be low, like a two or a three. But my umbrage level with quizmasters not being aware, either not being aware or not caring that they are either behind behind the schedule or not helping the quizzers figure out their timing, my umbrage level would be more like a five or a six.
0: Yeah, I kind of, I'm very much the same way. I think if a quiz master inadvertently does these sorts of things, two, three, the, the actual act of it happening itself is, is pretty low. I have a different level of umbrage for kind of splitting the pacing versus the behind schedule thing. So if a, if, if a quiz master is uh, unaware uh, that the, that the, point of a practice question is for quizzers to be able to dial in their pacing to me i i call that kind of like a four maybe a five but a quiz master that is behind schedule and is seemingly blissfully unaware that they're behind schedule and then does six practice questions like to me that's like a seven um because i mean to me it it, it spills over beyond the confines of the single quiz room right um you know if you don't provide your quizzers with the opportunity to learn your pacing be, uh, before the quiz starts, okay, it's not great, but I can live with that right? But if you're fifteen minutes behind and then you spend five minutes doing practice questions, that's just like that's sort of a signal that you're you're blissfully unaware <laughs> of the fact that you're 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 not the entire quiz me. you are one quiz master in one room. Uh, and you're pulling all of the meat down uh, like an anchor, <laughs> uh, and that's just not a good thing. So my umbrage level there is like a seven.
1: Shall I hit our next one here? Yeah, let's go for it. We've got quizmasters that read far faster than a quote conversational pace. So uh, there are like quizmasters, and it's it's a good number, a good percentage of quizmasters, maybe even a quarter or a fifth that read questions really fast and I've had conversations with them and they don't talk that fast in a conversation so they are artificially speaking faster when they read quiz questions the rule book says don't do that um, and I it baffles me and well it doesn't baffle me I know that the desire is probably to have the quizzer to provide the quizzers more information than if you were talking slower but to me that that's ridiculous because the quizzers get to jump at the point at which they, that's how much material that they want. It shouldn't be dictated by whether you are talking fast or slow. And quizmasters that talk fast sometimes do not allow very studied quizzers to jump on a very small amount of information. Um, so you're basically saying quizzers that have worked really hard and would be able to get specialty questions on, say, uh, one syllable or maybe less than one syllable, I am not going to reward you for being able to do that. I am going to punish you for being able to do that because of some misguided desire to give more information in like in sum to everyone. And it makes no sense to me. My average level is probably a nine because it shows, I mean, you're doing something that the rule book says don't do and you're doing it for terrible reasons. (laughs)
0: Potentially. Yeah. I mean, I agree, uh, obviously with everything that you said, people tend to read faster than they speak normally. So it may just be a factor of the fact that, you know, Hey, the, the questions on a card and I'm reading it versus just having a conversation. Um, and therefore it, it, it speeds things up. So, I mean, it may not be a deliberate choice, uh, from quizmasters. I ended up doing this myself when it, the first couple of years I was a quizmaster. Uh, I actually read very fast because, um, I think originally I wasn't even thinking, I wasn't even aware that I was doing it. And then I think I, I continued to read fast when I became aware that I was reading fast. I continued to do it because I felt like it was the only way to keep a quiz from falling behind uh, in terms of its overall time slot and and not being a, you know, an anchor for the rest of the, of the quiz meet. And it took me a while, uh, you know, a season or two, maybe before it dawned on me that actually what pulls a quiz down in time is all of the time between the questions, not the actual reading of the question and the 30 seconds in the question itself. And so I realized, like, I wasn't actually doing anybody a favor by reading so fast. I was actually harming the quizzers. And what would be far better would be to read at a normal, predictable conversational pace, uh, even slower than what I normally talk, because I tend to talk very fast too. Uh, but then to really control the overall quiz time by controlling the space between the questions.
1: Yep. And I, I mean, if we're talking about how to keep a quiz on time. I think the largest potential time savings is between the end of a quiz and the start of a next quiz. Absolutely. Um, It it is up to it is up to the officials to keep things moving. And if you don't, all the three teams that just finished will just linger up there. Coaches will not check the score sheets. The new the new three teams will not take the stage. And it's like across the board. It's like everybody will just not do this. Um, And it's up to the quiz master to make sure it keeps moving. And to me, that's the bulk of like how you keep a room on time, because I don't want to rush through, um, kind of between questions from the end of a ruling to the start of the next question. I want to make sure that, um, it like keeps moving, but kind of that flow and that general timing is so important to a quizzer. And so if you're kind of altering how fast you move in and out of questions and between them, it can be jarring and it can hurt quizzing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like, I mean, for my umbrage level about the conversational pacing thing, I'd probably call it like a six, maybe a seven, um, fairly high level of umbrage. I have where, where I would say my umbrage level is a nine, maybe even a 10 are the quiz masters that, you know, the quiz ends question number 20. And now it's a time to turn around and have conversations and chat and relax and, you know, kind of just let time slip away. Uh, it, instead, it's like the quiz is done, question number 20, no challenges, okay, great, final score, you read the score and then immediately announce the next teams, right? You know, team A, team B, team C. Even if they're not in the room, you're sort of setting the expectation of like, okay, great quizzers who are up there, coaches who are up there, Step off the stage. Next teams get ready. Let's 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 be start pushing, like gently pushing the 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 next quiz is beginning uh, to to be prepped, right? Um, versus saying, okay, great, I'm done with that quiz. Now I can I can chat for 15 minutes. And it's like, well, no, you can't. You're going to drag
1: down the rest of the meet. I think my umbrage level with that is far lower because it doesn't really hurt quizzers. It might cause angst on whoever's running the meet, which. I don't want to do that either, but I just hate speaking faster than a conversational pace because, um, it is, I don't know if you think that you're helping quizzers, but you are punishing the best studied quizzers. And to me, that's terrible. Like, and it's highly demotivating. Absolutely. I mean, I was, I was coaching a quiz and, um, back to back, finished the first questions quizzers. And like, this was an interdistrict meet and quizzers are jumping at generally the same speed every single question, right? For especially on the same question type. And one question, the quizzer got two syllables of material and the next one they got eight syllables of material because the quiz master was reading so darn fast. They just couldn't like stop. And it was, I was just blown away. I was like, you are ruining the experience for the quizzers that have studied the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what do you got next? The next one is quoting versus giving an answer. So. If a quiz master ever makes a ruling and says anything about quoting versus giving an answer, it's terrible because it doesn't exist in the rulebook. Um, my average level would be very high, a seven or an eight. Like You shouldn't be making rulings on things that don't exist in the rulebook. This is not a basis for any ruling. If you want to say something like, I can only consider your first answer or something like that. Um, that is a phrase in the rule book, but quoting versus giving an answer does not exist in the rule book. Now, my average level is lower on this if we're talking about a coach giving advice to a quizzer because the principle of answering um, by giving more content or quoting entire verses is a good principle for a quizzer to undertake when they are answering questions. But as a quiz master, if you are either using this as a basis for a ruling, or worse, doing that and then announcing it to the room as such, it's very, very bad because it doesn't exist in the rulebook.
0: Yep. I completely agree. I have nothing to add.
1: Um, what's your umbrage level on it? I would say a seven or an eight. Yeah, I'd call it a seven. Yeah, because I, I, I right there with you. Because I bet you in a lot of the cases where a Quizmaster is using this language, they could use other language that actually exists in the rulebook to support the exact same ruling. So don't think that it ends up being used as the basis for then incorrect rulings, but is just highly misleading because it doesn't exist in the <laughs> Right, right.
0: All right. Well, the next one up here is something that I take supreme. Uh, I, I have I done an umbrage level of ten before. Do you recall?
1: Um, I don't recall. No.
0: I don't, I, I think I've always couched my umbrage, even like the maximum umbragey things. I've, I've maybe gone up to like a nine. I don't think I've, I've ever gone to a ten. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have done a ten before, but it's pretty rare. This for me is a ten. This is, this is a big ten for me. Uh, it is quizmasters who don't keep up with a rule book or who don't review it regularly and by regularly i mean at a minimum once per season uh prior to the season starting but really even, I mean, that would be like at an absolute minimum. I, like, it might even be a good idea to sort of review it a couple of times a season. Uh, you know, certainly review it before a larger meet, like an internationals or, you know, a great West or winter nationals or something like that. Um, but the idea of quizmasters who sort of think to themselves, well, I read the rule book four years ago. I, I, I listened to, I read the emails from the CQLT announcing rule book changes. Uh, that's great. I'm, I'm good. I don't need to review the rule book right before this upcoming quiz meet. Like to me, that is deeply, I, I take maximal possible umbrage. If there was an 11, if the scale went to 11, I would take an 11 on the umbrage scale, uh, for a couple of reasons. It is supreme arrogance on the part of a quiz master to believe that something as complicated as the rule book, as it currently stands, the CMA rule book is something that they have perfectly memorized in their head. Right. Um, and to, to expect that, that does not dwind, that knowledge does not dwindle or tarnish with age without review. I, I just, I find that Mac massively arrogant and, and potentially very dangerous for for quizzing. That attitude uh, becomes extremely dangerous for quizzing. The the other thing that I find amazing are the quizmasters when they are presented with a, well, but you're misinterpreting this rule, they don't look up the rule in the rule book. Like they just say, well, I'm the quizmaster, or well, maybe they don't say anything, but they don't take the opportunity to question, well, maybe I don't actually remember the rule. Let's go let's go back to the rule book and actually you know read the source material from the rule book and and examine our positions, right uh, to me i I don't know i if I could go to eleven, I would, but Scott, what do you think about this one?
1: I also don't like this. My umbrage level would not be a ten. It would be high, maybe an eight. Um, but um I think my umbrage level would change based on the level because um. Uh, especially the experience level of the Quizmaster. At, at the district level, you may have a not-crazy-experienced Quizmaster, and I might not expect them to know every bit of the rulebook, and especially if something is happening that is not core or something that happens commonly, uh, my um level would be lower for a Quizmaster not knowing it. Once you get to the interdistrict district meets, especially internationals, my um level grows very high. It might even rise to a 10. I do know that one year there was trouble finding enough quizmasters for internationals. And at the last second, one from the host district had to be pulled in. And I can't remember any rulebook knowledge deficiencies from them. I think there was a lot of, there were other deficiencies, but my umsh level would be lower in that case, right? Because it wasn't someone that was self-nominating as, I think that I'm qualified to quizmaster internationals. But there are plenty of quizmasters who have quizmastered internationals a lot and miss rules you know there was one year I protested and was told you're not allowed to protest and I said why don't you look it up in the rule book and I'll wait and looked it up and was like oh you can protest and I was like yeah because it's in the rule book and um, and it wasn't even a corner case and things like that just baffle me like you are quizmastering at the highest level for the kids that have studied the hardest and you're not going to know the rule book um, my average level probably would be a 10 in that sp- sort of specific scenario.
0: Well, and let me, let me be clear, my 10 or even my 11 is not about somebody misremembering the rulebook, right? Like uh, I quiz master a lot or not so much anymore with all my district coordinator sort of duties and so forth. But, uh, you know, I love quiz mastering and, you know, I've read the rulebook. I can't even tell you how many times, uh, you know, cover to cover. And it's like, I still misremember rules. Like, so misremembering a rule or, 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 you know, uh, making a wrong ruling, these things happen. And my umbrage level for that, uh, even with experienced quizmasters, like even if, if, if somebody like you or, or Heather or Jeremy were to, you know, make an incorrect ruling because they misremembered a, a phrase from the rule book or something like that. My umbrage level is not super high with that because, you know, we're humans, we make mistakes. My umbrage level is really my, my, my 10 or 11 umbrage level is really around the attitude of, of the, the belief of, I don't need to look it up. Like I know the rule book so well that I don't need to keep refreshing myself on the rules. That, and that's the part that just bugs me to no end because I mean, y- you can read the rule book, literally every word cover to cover in like the time it takes your airplane to take off before they start serving you snacks. I mean, it's really not a gargantuan amount of time. It's not a gargantuan amount of effort. Um so I just I don't understand why a quizmaster wouldn't review the rule book right before a uh, an important meet.
1: Sure, but I think I mean again, it depends on what was misremembered, but I think even misremembering mis- my image level would be very high because there are there's not a ton of the rule book that a quizmaster is invoking regularly, you know and yeah. and especially not that's one hundred percent objective because there are tons of times where a quizmaster will deliberate about correct versus like did they say enough to be correct, did they give an incorrect answer um did they go out of context? things like that where it's not a hundred percent objective and you're going to need to think about it. And it's not about you not knowing the rule book or misremembering it. You just have to figure out what you think is the best ruling. But if there's a case where you apply the rule book incorrectly because you like forgot or misremembered, I think my level would be pretty high about that.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Well, and related to this is the next one on our list of umbridgey things. Uh, it's when I mean, quizmasters, sure, but really anybody involved in quizmaster or in in officiating or leading so this this relates to you know quizmasters, scorekeepers, answer judges. Uh, officials of any kind meet directors, district coordinators, coaches, head coaches, assistant coaches, really any, anybody involved in leadership boards of directors of districts, or, you know, at, at, at the international level, CQLT, really anybody who stops caring about finding ways to self-improve in, in quizzing this, this bugs me Uh, to, to you know, I, and I'm not really sure, you know, it's, it's, it's fine to basically say you know this particular season my life has been really super busy there's been a lot been there's a lot going on I haven't had enough time to be able to to devote to self of, self-improvement as much as I would like to that's one thing I'm not really talking about that I'm really talking about the the quizmaster official leader, of whatever capacity who simply decides that it's no longer important to find ways to self-improve. And to me,
1: this is uh, way up there in terms of umbrage level, um, eight or nine. It would be way up there for me as well. And to me, um, I'm mostly talking about the most experienced people because, um, I, I don't know, I, I would hold you to a much higher standard and it's just, there are quiz masters that because like, I've been involved with quizzing for most years over the past couple decades. And there are quiz masters that have been unbelievable quiz masters and are no longer. And this makes me sad because at some level, they either lost the ability to be a good quiz master, which I don't think is the case. It might be. Um, but um, a more likely thing is they just stopped caring as much or trying as hard or trying to improve or trying to maintain quality. And that's, that's terrible. And I don't, I don't want to, you know, be involved with people that wouldn't stop caring and trying to do their best. Um, there was a case when I was, I was an official at a meet and, um, caught things that both the quiz master and the answer judge missed, um, an invalid question, a quizzer providing a reference question of a different type that they would have ruled incorrectly on. And I was blown away. Like these were officials with probably more like 20 years experience both. And I was just like, I shouldn't need to catch this. (laughs) Like I'm the back, I'm the like second answer judge to just be another body here. Um, And it just blew me away because it, it shouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, and my thought is like, you know, I understand if you were heavily involved in quizzing, you know, in years past and there's a lot going on in your life and you can't be quite as focused on it as you were in, in the past, that's understandable. But then make a choice to step aside, you know, make a choice to say, well, you know what, instead of being a quizmaster, I'm going to try to find an up and coming quizmaster and mentor them, or, you know, I'm going to move into a different role where I can actually find the time to be able to be looking for ways to self improve in that other role and by exiting the role that I currently am in, uh, it provides an opportunity for somebody else to come into that role, get some fresh, you know, uh, energy into that role and and do better than I would have if I stayed there, you know, kind of thing. Uh, it, it just seems sort of myopic, self-interested uh, to sort of sit in a place where you cognitively know you're not really putting in 110%. Uh, and by sitting there, you're preventing other people from contributing this, that maximal level of energy that they would have if they were given the opportunity.
1: Yeah. So I think my image level would be very high if it is the case of an official, um, still able to devote a lot of time to it and, um, willingly participating, but just not putting in the same sort of effort. You know, there might be a lot of reasons why quality drops that may not be, Um, As appropriate to ascribe to the person but um, I bet you there are many cases where quality just drops because of lack of effort um, and focus and I don't think that should happen. Yeah, indeed.
0: All right. Well, so let's switch from quiz masters now to district program philosophy and operations. So we're talking about things like within PNW in particular, but some of these things have nothing to do with PNW. There are things that we've overheard from, say, other district programs. But, you know, in, in the context of district program quizzing, one of the first things we want to talk about is, uh, the idea some districts believe this and and kind of promote this idea. And that is the shunning of challenges and
1: uber shunning of protests. Scott, what are your thoughts on this one? I'll hit protests first, I guess, because I've protested a handful of times internationals, and I feel like um, it has been held against me and our district. And I don't know why that's the case. I think that officials, if they are protested, should be like, they should treat it as an opportunity to get something right. And if they think that um, the protests are out of ill will or um, blatantly incorrect or should not have happened. Like those are those are kind of managementy conversations that you have um, directly. Um, but there definitely seems to be a, a large culture of protests are not Christian and should not happen. And I think that that's ridiculous. I think that protests exist as um, like a way to ensure that quizmasters get things right. And I mean, I guess if we don't want to ensure that Quizmasters get things right, then we can shun protests, but I don't think we should want that. And the challenges thing is, so about protests, I don't know, my average level might be a five or a six because protests don't happen very often. Um, I don't know, but I guess my average level would be high because of how much people seem to dislike them and dislike anyone who does protest. I mean, I remember a year at Um, A meet that someone from PNW protested and another district was like like we didn't we didn't know that like protests happened. I was I was blown away. I was like, it's it's a mechanism in place to Like let a coach raise bring something to the attention of the officials and as of the new rule book a couple years ago like once there has been an overrule challenge, right and I think it's an important mechanism but on challenges like I know that there are some districts that teach their quizzers not to challenge and to me this is baffling because uh, um, quiz quizmasters will make errors and I think that that is expected and okay but the fact that you have 12 quizzers on the stage at least 3 of whom and I think maybe 6 of whom have the ability to challenge like I think it's a great practice for those quizzers to be aware of some or all of the rule book and be on the lookout because what what challenges do is keep the competition fair for everyone and by fair i mean the competition will happen as the rule book has laid out and so if there are objective things that the quizmaster has missed all the quizzers can challenge to have that rectified if there are subjective things that the quizmaster has done that a quizzer um, disagrees with then a challenge is a forum to have a discussion about that subjectivity in the rulebook. And to me, it's an incredibly interesting part of the competition where a quizmaster can say, you know what? I don't think you gave me enough information to be counted correct. And the quizzer gets to make their case for why they did. I think that's incredibly fun and incredibly useful, especially on those areas of the rulebook that are subjective. But I, there was a, a year I was coaching at internationals and just watching a quiz before our team quizzed. And there was a, a question that happened and. I witnessed what I think is a blatant error. And the quiz master did not call an error. And then the quizzer went on to get the question correct. And after the quiz, just as we were moving onto the stage and those teams were moving off, I just kind of pulled a quizzer aside who was on a competing team and who I knew was a really, really excellent quizzer. And I was like, hey, why didn't you challenge that? And just the look that I got was, I know that it was an error. Like that was the look that I got was I know that it was an air, but then I was told like we're we're told not to challenge and I was just blown away. <laughs> I was like, "All right," and I like I didn't push it further. Like it wasn't someone from my district, you know, but I was uh, like I was generally genuinely curious, like why they didn't challenge. And when I asked, like I don't know, the answer distressed me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. So I I basically look at challenges and protests as being. Really, the same thing, um, just by two different, you know, people, right? One, it's either the captain or the co-captain, and one, the other one is by the coach. But I mean, it, they they effectively do the same thing. They are there for the same reason, and that is to make quizzing fair. Not that. Anybody is intentionally trying to make quizzing unfair, but rather that we're human and we're going to make mistakes. And when we make mistakes as quizmasters or answer judges in our rulings, we inherently make quizzing unfair when we make mistakes, right? So the idea of the challenge and the protest is to make quizzing better for everyone by ensuring that there is a way to hold quizmasters accountable to Uh, accuracy in their rulings. That's the whole point of challenges and protests. Right. And so the idea of saying like, well, we shouldn't challenge and protest to me, having that as a policy is a, a terrible policy. I don't think it's a massively detrimental policy. So like my umbrage level is like, I don't know, six, maybe a seven, because I think, I think it's, I think it's really just misguided, um, to, to have that kind of philosophy and, and have that sort of policy in place. Um, what I react negatively to are actually the, the, it, it's not really the challenges or the protests. It's the attitude behind the challenge or the protest, right? So if a captain challenges me and is respectful, even if they are challenging on something that is just out in left field, it's totally absurd, but they're challenging honestly and respectfully, I like that. I want that as a quizmaster. I am baffled at any quizmaster who would not want that as well, right? Because that is a way, you know, having that in place is a way to, you know, have quiz masters held to higher standards and answer judges held to higher standards, right? Um, and similarly with protests, right? If a quiz master overrules a challenge incorrectly or rules on a challenge incorrectly, um, the protest is there so that the coach who you know is is familiar with the rule book familiar with the situation can say no nope, hang on i'm going to protest that 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 is an incorrect ruling on a challenge and here's why and it, it and and if done with respect uh it is a perfectly reasonable not just perfectly reasonable i think it is a really important aspect of quizzing where I would say we should not go are with challenges that are, you know, carrying negative attitudes, protests that are carrying negative attitudes. I've been in situations as a a quiz master where there was a particularly, let's say, cantankerous coach who felt uh, a certain level of glee at any opportunity to protest. So he would instruct his captain to challenge Radically, uh, as, as often as possible. And unfortunately, the coach's negative attitude kind of got echoed a bit into the captain. So the captain would challenge with a, with a poor attitude. Uh, and if they were wrong, the, the coach would, would protest again with a poor attitude. And it, that, that whole, aspect of it is very negative. Right. And it's detrimental to the quiz. I think it's detrimental to the program. And so in, in, in that regard, yeah, I'm very much against challenging challenges and protests that are done with poor attitude. Right. But if a quizzer or a coach is challenging or protesting with, you know, honestly, politely, respectfully, like that is such a critical part of, of quizzing that to, have that not exist? I think is is it, it actually hurts
1: quizzing. Absolutely, and but I do want to be careful with the use of the word respect because I think a lot of people kind of conflate um, respect with not challenging authority, and that is definitely not what we are talking about. Like there have yeah, been not at all. Like I've been protested a handful of times within PNW, and oftentimes the coach that is protesting is upset. Like they are upset, and they are using strong language to make their case but they are not making it personal they're not being inappropriate and to me that is what is required to be respectful it is not that they are making things easy on me or not using strong language (laughs) you know like um to me those things are not disrespectful the fact that they are challenging me like um those things are all very healthy and they're there so that um quizzers and coaches have avenues to at least have that discussion with the officials and i think that that's so so valuable there are there was one case where um, a coach protested and right before they protested they said well this is my kid's last quiz so i might as well protest and they knew that there wasn't grounds for a protest you know so that would be an example of like well don't protest then <laughs> like if that's the only reason that you're doing it and then there was another case of a quizzer and this was in our district that oftentimes when they made an error, kind of got an upset look on their face and maybe a smirk and would challenge just to see what could happen. And it wasn't really done in good faith. And But to me, my responsibility as a quiz master is to treat every challenge with the same level of um, importance and consideration, even if I am pretty sure that the motivations are poor. And because this happened repeatedly... I just had a conversation with their coach, you know, I was like, Hey, they're protesting a lot. I don't think there are often grounds. It might be a teaching moment, you know? And I think that that's the appropriate way to have to like have that conversation, but it's definitely not to say like, Oh no, this is another like really poor challenge. I'm not going to listen to it. I don't think there's any place for a quizmaster doing something like that. And I've, I've never witnessed a quizmaster doing something like that.
0: Right. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. Well, why don't you hit the next
1: one? Um, the next one, unri- un- an unwritten rule that teams who are out of it on question 20 should sit. So this happened at, um, I wasn't really aware of this, um, but I was I was kind of assistant coaching every PNW team at Great West one year, so I would kind of move between the teams. But I was the district coordinator of PNW. So after one quiz where the PNW team was out of it on question 20 and jumped and got the jump and got it correct in question 20, one of the Canadian coaches kind of pulled me aside, super nice, and was just like, hey... I was just curious what the motivation is or the reasoning behind jumping on question 20 when you don't have a chance to win the quiz. In our district, we kind of just don't to let the two teams that do have a chance to win the quiz fight it out amongst them, you know? And I was like, I just don't like any sort of unwritten rule that assumes that a team or a quizzer will take an action or not take an action. Um, Just because the team can't win this quiz, it doesn't mean that um, the points don't count for an individual's average, or even if it is a quiz where it doesn't count for individual's average. Um, at quizzes like Great West and Internationals and Internationals, correct questions are rare, and a quizzer who maybe hasn't gotten one in a while getting one um, can mean very good things for the future. It can put them in a better mindset. And so I just kind of explained all of those reasons for why I think it's fine for a team that mathematically has no chance of winning it on question 20 jumping on that question so my umbrage level wouldn't be super high um that that any unwritten rule exists in any district that a team that's out of it on question 20 shouldn't jump but i definitely think the teams that do jump shouldn't be made to feel bad or anything like that and i i definitely wasn't like it was a a really nice conversation that i had um but this is just one of those cases where it's weird like um There's probably a desire by both of those teams, especially the team who's ahead, to not have that third team complicating things, but that's just kind of the nature of quizzing. We've got three teams in there, and you can't know the speed at which every single person will jump. So, yeah, I don't like unwritten rules like this.
0: Yeah. I also, uh, as you know, I am a very, uh, very much big hater of unwritten rules and tribal knowledge and so forth. So (laughs) the fact that there's any sort of unwrittenness immediately makes me take some level of umbrage greater than zero. My umbrage level in this is fairly low. I, maybe a three or a four. I, I don't really, I think I don't see the gigantic harm in if in it if a team decides they want to do this i certainly wouldn't expect or i I would take higher umbrage if anybody felt like that that i was doing something wrong as a coach if i if i rejected this idea Um, but yeah i just I don't. I think the point of quizzing is everyone tries their best at every point in the quiz, right? Uh, You know, there's a time where a team might be knocked out of the opportunity to be in first or second place by question 16. Does that mean that literally for 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, they just sit on their hands and they don't participate? That just seems wrong. Like, why is it only on question 20? Why not 19 and 20? And by that nature you know, anything above question 15, right? Like it just seems weird and arbitrary. The whole point is there are three teams. Um, and you know, yeah, if your team is in third place and is absolutely, (coughs) you know, destined to remain in third place, but you can get a question on 20, go for it, make the other two teams fight, uh, equally hard
1: on question 20 as they did on 19, 18, 17. Absolutely. And I think that the competitive structure is set up well, so that if the team that is far out of it wants to just jump stupidly on question 20, well, um, the chances that they err is very high, and then it just goes to question A. And so, like, the structure is set up to handle that sort of thing. So it's fine if that team that's out of it wants to just be really stupid and jump on a mouth shape, um, but they're probably going to get it right and then the other two teams get to have their chance on question A. But I think if you look at a lot of sports, a um, teams that are far ahead do have an ability to kind of um, stall or run out the clock in, in sports that have a clock. So in basketball, you'll see teams waiting till the end of the shot clock and then just taking a shot because they want to run the clock down. In football, you'll see teams call plays that run the clock more. In soccer, you'll see teams go to the corner and just kind of stall or fake injuries just to keep the time moving. Um, and you can probably think of other things in other, other sports as well. And I think that all of those things feel very artificial and are not fun for the fans and so I'm I'm and it happens in quizzing too right a team that's up 100 points on question 17 or question 18 well it's better for them to just sit and not risk any errors well I mean good on them for being up that much but still it feels a little bit artificial and I think there are very interesting ways to end a a sports contest that remove all of those artificial things while still letting the team that has that great um, score advantage retain that advantage. So I think those things are interesting, um, but I think we just have to accept that as with a lot of sports, we get to this, we get to interesting end game scenarios in quizzing that might give some teams incentive to sit and some teams incentive to not sit, but any unwritten rules around it will be very problematic. And it's kind of similar to the stacking or not stacking. If you have an unwritten rule, well, then there's a large incentive for one, one someone to break that unwritten rule, and you don't really have an enforce, enforcement mechanism, and then it's kind of useless. Yeah.
0: Well, so the next two here, the last two things in the district program philosophy and operations are. Uh, well just I don't know how to classify them. I'll just jump in. So one that I've noticed in uh in a lot of districts, and, and I've noticed this across Quizzingdom, uh, not just inside CMA, but beyond CMA as well, is there seems to be very little quizzing evangelism that happens. Now, that's just my perspective. It is entirely possible that quizzing evangelism happens to a much greater degree than what I'm aware of. Uh, and I'm just not seeing it. Uh, but it seems and, and of course, it's it's going to be district dependent, it's going to be country dependent. I know that, you know, Canada seems to do a little bit better of a job than the United States does in terms of evangelism of quizzing. At least that's just, again, my personal perspective, highly subjective, I have no data to really support this feeling, but it's a feeling that I have. Um, but I've always been kind of perplexed around the idea of not doing evangelism or the choice to not do evangelism in quizzing. I mean, I can understand we've got a lot of things that we have to do. Uh, You know, we, if we fail to write questions, we don't have a quiz meet. If we fail to study, uh, you know, if we fail to practice with our teams as a coach, then our teams are not going to be equipped for the upcoming meet. So there's a lot of sort of I wouldn't call it urgent, but more urgent than say long-term things around, uh, like evangelism, right? You can procrastinate on evangelism for months and, you know, the effects are not profound relative to other things that if you were to procrastinate on them, their effects would be much more obvious and profound in the short term, right? Um, but in terms of long-term, if you're looking at quizzing from like year to year, decade to de- decade, I feel like the absence of of evangelism as a focus in quizzing is uh, significantly detrimental to quizzing. And oddly, quizzing evangelism should be fairly easy for us as Christians because we're called to evangelism as Christians anyway. Like we should be evangelizing Christianity. So, you know, to evangelize Christianity, oh, and by the way, here's quizzing, um, is really not that far of a stretch. So I don't know, Scott, what are your feelings on this? Have you experienced this? Do you feel kind of the same way that I do on this one?
1: Um, some in some ways yes and in some ways no. Like I have very I really have no idea what sort of inv- evangelism happens in other districts. Um, but I think there are a lot of things that make evangelism difficult. One is that the US CMA seems at best apathetic and at worst hostile towards Bible quizzing that makes it problematic. Um and the other thing is it's just hard for quizzing districts like quizzing districts don't have the information to effectively evangelize because largely church programs are run by a parent of multiple children in the quiz program and district coordinators and or those within a district who work on evangelism don't have access to Um, contact information for parents in CMA churches that do not participate currently in Bible quizzing. Um, It's hard enough to find contact information for senior pastors or youth pastors, which are often a very poor route because, probably correctly so, those pastors receive any pitch as just another pull on their time or their budget, which quizzing doesn't have to be a pull on either and rarely is a pull on either. Um, but it's just, it's just a difficult thing to do because you don't have the information. And it's something that I ran into as well. Like I can't just ask for, um, names, phone numbers, and email addresses of parents of multi-children families in, you know what I mean? Like it's a ridiculous question to ask. Um, but I th- I think evangelism, evangelism is difficult, but it is very, very crucial. And I, I have no information on what sort of evangelism happens in other districts.
0: Sure. Well, and, and to your point, I'm certainly not saying that quizzing evangelism is easy and we should do it because it's easy. Rather, I think it's very hard and we should do it because it's hard. Um, I think there's, there's value in doing it long-term to the program, but it's definitely, I mean, especially when we're not getting, as you mentioned, we're we're not getting sort of CMA, you know, US level uh, support, uh, that, that can be disappointing. Um, I've encountered pastors who were, I mean, most of the time when I talk to pastors, I'm a pastor. So, you know, I talk to a lot of pastors. When I talk to pastors, most of the time, 95% of the time, they're kind of like, oh, quizzing, that sounds interesting. Or they're like oh, that sounds weird or something like that. But they, they, they can usually go anywhere from a lukewarm to mildly positive, you know, response based on what I tell them about quizzing, but then nothing really happens as a result of it because they're, you know, pulled in a thousand different directions. And I, I understand that, but I have encountered this five to 10% of pastors that I talk to who are openly hostile to quizzing. They're, they're, they're hostile to the idea of conducting a youth ministry. That is not something that is entirely under their control under their church, but is actually an interchurch uh, ministry. And that just baffles me and it frustrates me, but regardless, that's a sort of another umbrage thing that <laughs> I should list that as one of the umbrage things, um, pastors who are openly hostile to quizzing just is, is weird. Um, and I I think would yeah if I was going to put an umbrage level on that one, I'd call it like an eight. But, but in terms of quizzing evangelism, yeah, it's hard. But I think we should still
1: do it. Sure. And I think anecdotally, it seems like the number of non-CMA churches p- participating in CMA quizzing is growing. And I think it is an indication that something is going on in the CMA that just makes quizzing less of a known or less of an attractive or less of a s- supportive thing than it once was. Indeed. Indeed.
0: Well, so the last one, uh, at least for this podcast, cause we're going a little over and we're going to have to save our, the remainder of our juicy list of Umbridgey things for, you know, I guess part three, uh, of our podcast here. But, um, the last one, and I'm not sure exactly how to, to label this problem. Um, so this is probably not a great label, but I'll call it the district director autocracy problem or the leadership oligarchy problem. And I'm not really, and I really shouldn't limit it just to district directors. It's really, I've seen this happen with head coaches. Uh, uh, it's this idea of like one person over a a program, a section of a program, either at the district level or a church level, who basically sets themselves Up or or becomes kind of this, you know, king or queen or something like that. Like like everything has to pass through that person. They have the final word. They can overrule anything. Uh, you know that sort of. There's no sharing of power. There's no checks and balances uh, behind that person. So you know, I refer to myself as the district coordinator of of Pnw. Last year Scott was well. I guess no two. Year and a half ago, whatever. Um, Scott was the district coordinator of, of PNW. We, we refer to ourselves as the district coordinator because we are coordinating more than directing. And it's kind of a semantic difference, uh, I guess. Uh, but to me, it's important. Like, I don't want to direct as in like control, I want to coordinate as in to facilitate, which is a, you know, just a languagey thing. Honestly, but it, it's a it's a constant reminder that I need to be looking for other people to raise them up into leadership positions to equip other people for ministry to share uh, leadership decisions as as much as I can uh, can do that. You know, that that's sort of that's where I see my kind of role as opposed to sort of the flip side of it where I've encountered district directors and, and church uh, leaders, uh, head coaches and so forth who feel this sort of need to be like, uh they can only they can be the only single source of, of of decisions. And I've even seen leaders who have become aware of the fact that yeah, I'm being very dictatorial. I'm being very autocratic here. I will share my power. And then, when the the folks that they share their power with come to a decision that is different than what they want, they'll just override the the decision making process. I've actually seen that happen on more than one occasion. To me, it, it's um, fortunately most of that is hidden from the quizzers, which is good. I don't want to. It's a terrible, terrible example uh, for quizzers in terms of you know responsible leadership. Um, but I do think it hurts the program. And of course, it hurts the program based on, you know, how pervasive that attitude is. I think the biggest problem with it is more longer term than shorter term, right? That's the, the problem in the short term is maybe some decisions aren't exactly the best decision or the most collaborative of decisions. Uh, there might be some short term harm there, but I think it pales in terms – the cost there pales in terms of the cost of the long-term detriment of the program, where that autocratic, oligarchic sort of structure causes people to be disillusioned about wanting to volunteer as a future leader, right? Um, And I think that hurts the program tremendously from a long-term perspective.
1: Yes, I think that that definitely does hurt because you want people to feel like they have a stake and a say and influence in something, otherwise they're not going to care. And you want to provide the opportunity for as many people to care as possible. Um, I do think as a leader, it is hard or as the single point of contact for a district, it is hard to balance the decisions that need to be made dictatorially and those that don't. There are lots of small decisions or very timely decisions that do need to be made Um, in a non-democratic manner. Um, But then there are a lot of things that are not as either small or um, urgent that should be made in a much more democratic manner. But I think at the very least, any decisions that are made in a dictatorial and not a negative, but a dictatorial manner should be clearly communicated and documented so that nothing is like hidden, right? Um, but as someone who has run a district and also run meets, there are a million decisions that people just show up to you with and you have to decide in five seconds. Um, and you cannot farm that. I mean, you, you cannot look for wider input, but that's very different than like the strategic direction of a district or changing, structure or rules for your quiz meets, things that um, have a much longer time horizon that you should absolutely make sure that people know about, have buy-in, are able to provide feedback on.
0: Right, right. And so like, you know, the sort of the difference between your tenure as coordinator and my tenure as coordinator is the establishment of the bylaws. And so in the bylaws, there is explicit Accountability where the board can over the board has the authority to override any and all decisions that that I make as the coordinator. The coaches have the authority to override any and all decisions of the board and or the coordinator. Right. So the idea being that yeah you know we the coordinator or the meet director has to make split second decisions. They have to answer things in the moment. Sometimes you can't call, you know, call a conference together and, and sort it out. These sorts of things happen. It's unwieldy to even even if you have a little bit of time, it's unwieldy to get a coach representative from every church or uh, according to the bylaws to coach representatives from every church to weigh in on every decision. That's why we have the board who can discuss and articulate and spend some time uh, and and formulate uh, uh, decisions on behalf of the General Assembly. But then the General Assembly has the ability to say, you know what, the board made a mistake here, we're going to change that. Uh, And they have the capability of doing that. So I mean, Now, with the bylaws, that's ensconced. Prior to the bylaws that were there, though, Scott, when you were the coordinator, I really appreciated that you acted basically the same way, right? Like, like you had a steering committee and you generally, when you could, you farmed, uh, decisions to the steering committee. Um, you, you really only made, uh, you know, director type decisions when you didn't have the opportunity to get the steering committee involved or if it was something fairly, you know, one off or trivial or something like that. Um, but you actively tried to engage the steering committee, if the steering committee was, you know, a majority of the steering committee was leaning in one direction versus another, you would go with the majority, you wouldn't override the the steering committee, right? Even though there was nothing in place that would have prevented you from doing that, right? Like you could have just said, no, the steering committee is wrong. I'm I'm just going to do what Scott wants. I don't think you ever did that. And, and like, I super appreciated that. So like, for me, I think my life is, is, as a as a coordinator, is actually easier than your life because I can go back to the bylaws and say, aha, see, I can't make a decision here. I I have the ability to take it to the board, therefore I must, um, whereas you had the option and yet you chose what I believe to be the right thing, which was taking it to the steering committee. So, I mean, for me, I, I just, you know, I've said it before, I, I'll say it many more times. I really <laughs> respected and liked your uh, your tenure as as district coordinator. And that was, uh, for me on a personal level and a, you know, if there is such a thing as professional quizzing on a professional level as well in quizzing, that was why I returned to, to quizzing because I was, I I expected from the outset that that was how you were going to handle things. And sure enough, that is exactly how you handle
1: things. And I think that that was absolutely the appropriate way to do it. Well, thank you. And I don't recall how specific we were about um, where decisions went, in what order, and who had the authority to overrule who by what simple or supermajority. But I did, like, I knew that it had to be, it was very important that a majority of the steering committee could vote and replace me. Because something like that sounds very draconian and probably will almost never happen in a district. But the fact that it exists and that everyone who's involved knows that that is how Scott can be replaced, to me, like, brings an enormous level of trust um, to whatever decision I make, right? Because you no longer have to, like, um, like, saddle up to, like, fight against the district coordinator because – Um, You have to fight every decision because you don't know how to replace them or subvert them or anything else like it was very clear. And if I did something crazy, unpopular or um, poor for our district, I would just be replaced. And again, it wasn't like people were frothing at the mouth to do this. But I think because in the back of your mind, you know that, oh, that's the mechanism by which we replace the district coordinator. It allows you to trust the decisions that that the district coordinator does make by themselves right um, right and i think that that's what i'm finding as such of the such of the value of bylaws cuz you know if we put stuff in the bylaws about oh this is how a district coordinator gets replaced or a uh, quizmaster gets replaced or like all this stuff that sounds like whoa like i've never heard of this happening why would we ever want to do this and it's not we're not writing about it because we expect to have to use it but the existence of solid and clear language about the process for how this happens is what gives people comfortability with participating. Like back in the mid 2010s, like the problem that I had with like how quizzing was governed at the internationals level was I had no idea how anyone got onto the leadership team or got off or if there were terms or what the responsibilities were or if I thought someone was doing an awful job, how I try to get them off or if I want to be involved, how I try to get on. Like I knew nothing. And because there wasn't anything, you know, and so that situation just breeds distrust, which is a very unhealthy thing. And simply just saying like, oh, this is how you are elected and how you would be replaced, you know, by this sort of a vote. Um, And I, I don't know, like that sort of thing is what brings trust and allows leaders to lead and people to trust how they're leading, but know that they have mechanisms for accountability.
0: Right. I I totally agree. It, It trust and accountability absolutely are a part of it. I think engagement is the other part. The when a coach believes that they have a voice and actually it's not about even their belief when a coach really actually has a voice and a vote that's established in bylaws and it says like, yeah, any decision that the district coordinator makes or the board makes and you don't like it, you think it's wrong all you have to do is get, you know, 50 plus one, 50% plus one coaches to agree with you and it changes. Right. So like, like, even though that's probably never going to happen because virtually everything we've ever done has been unanimous voting at both the coach level and at the, at the, at the board level, um, the the fact that that is ensconced as a this is how we will handle disagreements provides coaches the the rationale the reasoning the 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 sort of the je ne sais quoi the 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 backbone that's not even really it it it, it provides them the spark to be engaged in those decisions right if if you're a coach and you disagree with something that a, a decision that's been made, but you have no voice, right? You have no way to vote. There isn't a mechanism to overturn a decision. Then, like, well, why bother even rocking the boat? Why even talk about it? Why even bring it up? Right. And that's going to cause a coach to feel disillusioned, separated, isolated, not engaged. And very become increasingly disinterested in the program. And I think the program suffers as a result. But then if we ensconce the ability to, you know, make effective changes with the 50% plus one opportunity or whatever it happens to be, then even though it's, it may never be used, a coach feels like, well, yeah, I'm, I have a vote. I have a voice. I am, I have an official capacity. Uh, in some degree of shaping the entire p and w quizzing program for the better, and my opinion matters, therefore,
1: I will express my opinion absolutely and like going back to our um challenges umbrage about like um districts that would shun challenges, I mean if you have a quizzer that it has studied well and knows the rule book and wants to challenge because they think the rule book has been applied incorrectly. If you take away that opportunity and that pro- that stated process for a quizzer to do that, then um, the most engaged and interested quizzer who wants to advocate for themselves or their team, like the best that they can do is either complain or try to subvert the quizmaster somehow, or just be kind of generally difficult because they have no other avenues, um, which is not a good thing, right? Not something that a quiz program should want. But then the very next step is complete apathy which is the thing that you don't want from your from quizzers that have studied hard and know the rule book and like would want to be involved. They'll just like stop caring because they feel like, well, I, I don't have influence over something that I feel like is, is wrong.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, apathy is the killer of any volunteer program. Right. So, I mean, coaches can fall into that exact same Uh, State right. If a coach doesn't feel like they have a voice, they can fall into a state of apathy, and
1: that is
0: poison to
1: a volunteer program. Absolutely. To be super petty, there's some some sappy breakup uh, song that um, has a lyric that is something like, "I don't hate you, I just don't care," and it's like (laughs) it's like almost a more brutal thing that you like don't care, right? And it's like the same thing as like apathy shows lack of interest, whereas dislike or anger or something it means like you're upset about something and maybe misguided, maybe guided, um, but you're still invested to a certain degree and interested and involved. But apathy means you're like checking out. Right, exactly.
0: Well, and on that uh, checking out note, uh, we should probably uh, check out of this particular podcast. We are a little bit over on time. Uh, but uh thank you all for listening. I especially want to thank listeners who are listening from outside uh CMA quizzing. It's really great that you guys are listening and uh, we'd love to hear from any and all of you, whether inside or outside of CMA or if you're involved in quizzing or not. I mean, especially if you're not involved in a quiz program but you're thinking about it, would very much love to hear from you. If you take umbrage with any of the umbrage taking that Scott or I have taken – in this or any episode, we'd love to hear from you, uh, or even if you agree to, but especially if you disagree, we'd like to hear from you. Please email us at iq at cbqz.org. That is iq for inside quizzing at cbqz.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our account is at inside quizzing, and you can also chat with us in semi real time on the Slack, uh, forum, the Bible quizzing Slack forum, uh, pound inside dash quizzing. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott.
1: Yeah, we absolutely want interested and involved and passionate quizzers to challenge and protest our umbrage levels and our thoughts. We cannot want that anymore. So please, um, hit us with all of that and happy listening, everybody.